Blog Talk Radio. National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, with co-host Patricia Glover Howard. Hi, Patricia. Hello, Bernice. Well, Patricia, I am really looking forward to this discussion tonight. And you know, today is the kickoff day for Black History Month. So this mm-hmm. entire month, we will be learning just so much about black history, although it's black history is really every day, right? That's right. That's right. So I am happy to welcome the callers and chatters to research at the National Archives and beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen learn, and take action. If you have logged in as a guest and you wish to participate in the chat, please sign in through Blog Talk Radio or Facebook. Well, tonight's show will focus on the life and legacy of Dr. Benjamin E. Mays and also describe and discuss the Dr. Benjamin E. Mays Historical Preservation Site located in Greenwood, South Carolina. Now, sharing this information is Chris Tom- Thomas, and Chris received the Bachelor's of Art in History and a Master's of Arts in Theological Studies and a Master of Theology. He is an ordained elder in the Church of God in Christ and is celebrating his 25th years in public ministry. He currently is the director of Gleeman's Dr. Benjamin E. Mays Historical Preservation Site in Greenwood, South Carolina. Now, Gleams Human Resources Commission Incorporated is a community action agency, and it serves Greenwood, Lauren, Edgeville, Abbeville, McCormick, Newberry, and Saluda counties. So let me give a warm welcome to Benjamin B. Thomas, to research at the National Archives and beyond. Welcome, Chris. Well, thank you for having us. We appreciate this opportunity to come on and talk to your listening group about the incredible 
life and legacy of Dr. Benjamin E. Mays. Uh, here at the Benjamin E. Mays Historical Preservation Site, we have his birth home here uh, that was moved about 14 miles from our location where it originally sat where he was born uh, in Epworth County, August 1st, 1894. Uh, we also have the Burn Spring School here that was identical to the school that uh, Dr. Mays attended. He attended a school called the Brickhouse School from age 5 until age 15. And we also have a barn that uh, serves as a modern museum. Uh, and in here we have a pictorial history of Dr. Mays' life from, from birth till transition. Uh, and our most recent addition to our site is we uh, installed on November the 4th, a uh, seven-foot bronze statue of Dr. Mays that sits on a four-foot base, uh, and we had a wonderful installation ceremony, and it's just sort of the crown jewel of our site, and we encourage anybody that has an opportunity to come to Greenwood uh, to come and take a look at our site and learn more about Dr. Mays and his incredible life and legacy. Well, you know, it's just wonderful to hear of the uh, preservation site, and I want you to take us Take us through the life of Dr. Benjamin E. Mace and start at his beginning. You you mentioned all of the, the things that are available at the preservation site, but let us hear about the man. Tell us about Dr. Mays. Well, Dr. Mays was born, as I said, August 1st, 1894, and he was born uh, just after the end of the Reconstruction era at a time where white Southerners were really going about the business of reestablishing right, white rule in the South. Um, Dr. Mays was born to two parents who were both ex-slaves. His father uh, had far more elaborate memories of slavery than his mother. His mother was only three years of age when slavery ended. Um, his father was 10, so he had more memories of slavery. And in fact, uh, Hezekiah's memories were not so pleasant. In fact, the man that owned their family was a fairly treacherous man. Um, Hezekiah said that he made their family eat out of a pig trough like he fed the animals on his farm. And so he uh, instilled, I think, in his children a sense of, of uh, caution about white people. Um, and so Dr. Mays, of course, uh, his earliest experience in life, what he says in his autobiography, were the experiences of the Phoenix Riots. Um, the Phoenix Riots was probably the most sordid event here in Greenwood County history. Uh, it happened when Dr. Mays was four years of age uh, on August 8, 1898. Um, there was a, an altercation at the, the uh, general store down in the Phoenix community between a man named Tom Tolbert and uh, a group of white citizens who were local Democrats who did not want to see uh, African-Americans exercise their right to vote. Um, a, a voting African-American man was probably the most feared thing at the beginning of the turn of the century uh, by whites in the South, particularly, that wanted to continue white supremacy. And so uh, Tom Tolbert was trying to get these African-Americans to exercise their right to vote. Uh, they were signing affidavits on the porch of this uh, general store to send to the president to say why they weren't voting, and these two uh, white citizens uh, uh, both Etcherson James Cheatham and a mob of white men came up and demanded that they leave the polling place. Uh, well, Mr. Both Etcherson and Mr. Tom Tolbert get into a fight that turns into a gunfight, um, and uh, Mr. Both Etcherson is shot dead. He was hit with a bullet wound to his forehead and, and, and fell dead there. And over the next uh, week, um, white citizens from all around Greenwood County converged on the Phoenix community to avenge the death of Bose Etheridge. Uh, and day two of that event was the bloodiest day, um, where five men were tried uh, at Rehoboth Church down in the Phoenix community, um, and they were all lynched and, 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 and killed, and their bodies were left there in a pile for, for, for at least a week. Uh, and on that day, men on horseback rode up to Dr. Mays' home. He was four years of age sitting on the porch, and he said that he remembered that he started to cry when these men came. And they literally came and terrorized and humiliated his father. Um, and this left a lasting impact upon Mays. Uh, in fact, Mays later on said that he left Greenwood County uh, when he went off to go to high school, believing that all whites were his enemy because of his experiences. 
But Dr. Right. Mays at a very well, young age. Let me age just was... ask you a question because I yes. need you to slow it down just a little. You're going really okay. fast. Right. We're, we're having okay. a hard time following you. So you, sure. you mentioned to us the Phoenix riots and that uh-huh. Dr. Mays at the age of four could yes. tell you he remembered this. So tell us again what happened. Just just tell it a little slower. <laughs> so um, what was going on is, is is mobs of white men were riding around the county, uh, terrorizing African Americans, and they were hoping to find the men that were involved in because there was many African American men on the porch of the Watson and Lake General Store that day, and they were going around the county um, trying to find those men that they thought were involved. And so they rode up to the Mays' home. Uh, it was a mob of men on horseback with shotguns, and they forced his father to, to get down on his knees and to stand up and to take his hat off three times and to bow to them and to say that, they, that he would not be a problem to them. Uh, and Dr. Mays said he was four years of age, standing on the porch of his house, and that's his earliest memories in life. Uh, when he wrote his autobiography, he said that was his earliest memories in life was the memories of the Phoenix riots. And I think that, you know, the community, uh, African-American community at large, was traumatized by this event. Um, you know, many, many African-Americans fled our county. Um, some historians have, say that, have said that more than 1,000 African-American men fled to the woods, never to be seen again. Uh, and, and it was a trauma, you know, it was a, an event of great trauma. And for a four-year-old, of course, to see men, uh, you know, the whole community was in fear, but also to see that uh, specifically upon your own family and your own, fa- own father. I'm sure it was a very terrorizing experience for for young Ben Mays. Oh yes, it, it, it's it's a sad memory that he carried. Yes. But what did that do to him as a person? Tell us a little bit more about his childhood as he grew up. Well, I think that the experience made Dr. Mays um, very very resistant to whites and white supremacy, and felt a sense that he was not going to go through life. Uh, allowing people to disrespect him. And so at a very early age, Dr. Mays was very determined, uh, particularly to get an education. Um, you know, he, he goes to the Brick House School at age five, and his sister Susie, uh, whom we don't know how she learned to read and write because she grew up in a home, of course, where her mother was completely illiterate, uh, and her father could, could uh, read some but could not write. But she learned to read and write, and so by the time Dr. Mays enters the Brick House School at age five, he knew his alphabet and his numbers to 50, and he could write his name and could write small sentences. And immediately his teacher, Mrs. Waller, uh, goes to his parents and to his childhood pastor, Reverend Marshall, and and really encourages them to cultivate in Dr. Mays um, this desire to get an education. But Mays was also hindered by the fact that he lived in the sharecropping world. And so his entire youth, he only goes to school four months a year, just during the winter, November, December, January, and February. And the rest of the time, from about the time he was five, he would have worked uh, in the fields uh, as a farmhand and primarily picking cotton. And, uh, you know, Dr. May said he was never uh, offended by life on the farm. He just wanted something greater out of life. And he said that he would oftentimes go and tie his mule to a tree and go somewhere and pray that God would give him an opportunity to get an education because Mays felt that it was that equalizer for him. Uh, he was also, as a, as, at a very early age, troubled by the idea of black inferiority that existed here in the South. And uh, he was troubled by the idea that he might have been uh, created by God inferior to whites. Uh, in fact, he once told his mother that he said, Mom, if God had made me inferior, he said, I could never pray to a God like that. And, and that kind of vexed his saintly mother. 
um, but I think she thought maybe her son was you know, leaning towards atheism. But really what Mays was saying was he just simply did not believe that God had made him inferior. And he wanted an opportunity to go uh, and compete with white students. But unfortunately, he lived in the Jim Crow segregated South, um, and that wasn't possible. So they could tell him that every white student uh, was a, a rocket scientist, and he would have no way to prove otherwise because he couldn't go into a classroom and sit side by side with them. Uh, but he certainly went to the Brickhouse School. Um, he was very attentive. Uh, he was a tremendous student. Uh, he goes there from age 5 to age 15. Uh, and at age 15, he goes to another school that was run by his pastor, uh, the Bethany School for the Coloreds that was in McCormick, South Carolina. And he stays there for two years. And then he really wants to go off to high school and to get a high school education. But there were no black high schools in this county. Uh, and so he applies to two of the historically black colleges and universities here in the state of South Carolina uh, and gets into them both. But he decides to go to South Carolina State High School Department. Uh, and so at uh, 17 years of age, he goes off to, to uh, uh high school at South Carolina State High School Department, but not with some without some obstacles. His father was not in favor of Dr. Mays' desire to pursue an education. Um, Hezekiah you know, had was under the belief that uh, too much education would make him lazy and dishonest, and he also needed his labor on, on the farm. When you're a sharecropping man trying to run a farm, certainly your son's wanting to go off to school doesn't help you to, to do what you want to do. And so Mays said that he had a heated discussion with his father about this, and he said, in anger, my father threw a, fi- a $10 bill at me, and Dr. Mays said he picked it up and gathered up his belongings and went off to high school. Um, and so when he gets down there, he, he he meets a young lady named Ellen Harvin. She was from Manning, South Carolina. Um, and Mays thought, you know, said that Ellen was the kind of girl that could understand a boy like him, a boy that was lured by a dream and driven to accomplish something in life. Uh, and, and Mays also said that most of the students that were there weren't there to be serious students. They were just there to party and flirt with the opposite sex and have a good time. And he called them the don't care boys. Um, and so uh, Mays was very, very serious about getting education. He tests at an eighth grade level when he gets there. And so it takes him five years to finish high school uh, because he has to do a, a year of remedial school. And he also goes down there his first two years, and he, he goes November, December, January, and February and comes back to work on the farm uh, because that was what his father expected. Uh, and then he decided that he was going to break ranks with his father's desires, and um, he decides to write his father a letter and tell his dad that he wasn't coming back to Greenwood, that he was going to stay uh, at high school and go to school full time. And uh, his father was a little upset and wrote him a letter and told him he had to come back because the family needed him to work on the farm. And Mays writes him another letter and says, you know, Dad, I I can't come back. I've only been in school four months a a year my whole life. And if I keep coming back to Greenwood, I'll never fulfill my dream of of graduating from high school. And so uh, his father writes him a letter and says that if you don't come back here, I'm going to send the Greenwood sheriff after you to come down there and get you. Um, and, and, And Hezekiah never did, partly because he knew that if the sheriff went down there to get his son, he would bring him back beaten and bloodied. Uh, and he just couldn't stand the, the fact of seeing another African-American young man uh, beaten and bloodied by the sheriff and certainly one that was his own son. And Dr. May said he was glad that his father never followed through on that threat because if he had sent the sheriff after him, he would have been compelled uh, to come back to Greenwood. And so Dr. May stays down there. Uh, he graduates valedictorian of his class. Uh, and upon graduation, he decides still that he wants to go north and compete with the minds of these Yankees. And he uh, sent out many, many applications to schools up north, to white schools, and, and none of them would let him in. And so finally he decided uh, at the uh, behest of one of his faculty members there that was a uh, uh, alumni of, of uh, Virginia Union in, in Richmond, Virginia, the historically black college university there. And so he decides to go to Virginia Union his first year. Uh, and he gets down there and he says that he found uh, white professors for the first time in his life that were concerned about the Negro student. And he said he found for the first time uh, Negro students that were concerned about being serious students and about talking about the things that he wanted to talk about. And one of those things that Mays wanted to talk about of course, was segregation. 
Uh, there was a segregated uh, movie theater there uh, in Richmond, and the, the students would sit down and talk about should we go and pay our money um, to go and, and, and be segregated in a balcony. And that was something Mays felt very serious about and very convicted about his whole life. In fact, he would oftentimes go places and not eat because he refused to have someone slide him some food out of the back door uh, of, of a restaurant, and uh, he would take the stairs and, and he, he just you know lived his life in rebellion to the very concept of segregation that existed in the south uh, but he goes to virginia union for a year uh, and those two white professors that uh, uh, he said were concerned about the negro students were both graduates of bates college in lewiston maine and they both write letters of recommendation for him to go to bates college and so for his uh, second year of college he goes to lewiston maine uh, and he goes to, to bates college and he said that uh, he was living in a predominantly well, Chris, white world there but for the, yes I, I just want you to tell us when was all of this taking place? I mean, so he went he finished high school yep. and then at what point did he go to Bates? What year? So he 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 goes to Virginia Virginia Union in the 1916-17 school year. And okay. then he enters Bates College in the fall of 1917. Okay, great. Go ahead. <laughs> Okay. And so uh, while he's at Bates, he, he begins to have this transformative experience there. Uh, you know, what he thought of whites uh, from his experience in the South really began to change. And one of the experiences that he talks about uh, is that he was shoveling snow one day for the, the president of Bates College. And, and uh, while he was shoveling snow, it was these blizzard conditions. And of course, he's a, a Southerner, so he doesn't really understand that you shouldn't be out in a blizzard. And, and uh, the, the man comes and, and brings him in out of the snow and sets him next to the, the fireplace in his home. And, and, and next to his white daughter, which is something that a, a white Southern man would have never done. Uh, and so Dr. May sort of has this irony about this experience in that for the rest of his life, he has uh, his hands and his feet tingle whenever it gets cold because he got frostbite from being in the snow that day. But it was sort of a bittersweet memory because uh, of the experience when he would get these tingles in his hands and feet, it would remind him of the kindness that this white man showed him that day when he brought him into his home, into this fine home uh, there in Lewiston, Maine, and, and fed him and, and warmed him next to the fire next to his daughter. And so Mays begins, to, again, to have this transformative time there at Bates College, and, and the idea that all whites were his enemies began to leave. And also, he was so successful academically there, um, he said that when he got to, close to graduation, he, he had put to rest in his mind forever the idea that he was inferior to white people because he was able to go there and to hold his own at this fine uh, northern liberal arts institution. And so he graduates uh, in 1920, uh, and he graduates with honors from Bates College, and you'll hear people say that he was a Phi Beta Kappa graduate of Bates. Um, that's kind of true and kind of not true. He, it, it takes him uh, 18 years to, to get to distinguish as Phi Beta Kappa, and he said uh, that it was racism that kept him from doing it, and so for years, some people thought that it was Bates College that did not submit his name, but in fact, Bates College has submitted his name every year, but the racism was that uh, the whites that were part of the Phi Beta Kappa Council um, did not have the same kind of respect for historically black colleges, and so they would not accept his coursework from his freshman year that he was at uh, Virginia Union. But Bates College continued to submit his name every single year for 18 years, and it's from 1920 to 1938, and it's not until 1938 that he's actually uh, admitted to Phi Beta Kappa, you know, of course, as a Bates College student, but uh, he becomes a, a Phi Beta Kappa member in 1938. Um, 
Dr. Mays then decided that uh, he, he uh, pledged Alpha uh, Omega Psi Phi fraternity during that period of time. Uh, he commuted back and forth to, to Boston, Massachusetts on the train so that he could pledge. Uh, and two weeks after he graduates, he goes and marries his high school sweetheart, Ellen Harvin. Uh, and uh, the two of them marry, and Ellen then returns back to South Carolina, and Dr. Mays continued to work uh, from uh, June of 1920 until December uh, of 19. 19- of that same year, uh, he takes the train um, from Lewiston, Maine to Chicago. Uh, wasn't quite sure how he was going to make it. Um, he was a stowaway on that train. Some porters had hit him away on the train so he could get to Chicago because he wanted to go and earn a master's degree at the University of Chicago. And he gets there and he has a difficult time because uh, uh, he didn't have a lot of money when he, when he went to Chicago and he had a difficult time finding employment while he was there. And uh, uh, the first African-American president of Morehouse College, uh, John Hope, Dr. John Hope, had hoped to meet Mays while he was at University of Chicago at a conference, and he meets Mays and he offers him $1,200 to come to Morehouse to teach mathematics. So in the fall of 1921, he comes to Morehouse for his first teaching stint there, uh, and he becomes the first African-American to teach uh, calculus on the Morehouse campus, uh, which is a phenomenal thing considering that his degree was in it, in, in religion. And uh, he also starts a, a mentoring group there uh, with students that he uh, had a debate team with. He was the first African-American to be a part of the debate team when he was at at, uh, Bates College, and he sort of continued that legacy there. And two of his great students while he was there uh, were a man named James Nabert and a man – uh, and, of course, James Nabert goes on to be a tremendous attorney. Uh, he's, he argues, argues one of the cases in the Brown versus Board of Education case, the Bowling versus Sharp case. Uh, he also, during the time that Dr. Mays is later on uh, the dean of the School of Religion at uh, Howard University uh, in the late 1930s, um, he was a law professor there at Howard University. Uh, and uh, his bright student, of course, was uh, – uh, uh, Mine just won't be Thurgood Marshall, um, and James Nabert teaches the first civil rights law class in American history there. And uh, later on, Thurgood Marshall calls upon his former uh, uh, law professor to come help him with that uh, effort to uh, end segregation in public schools. Um, the other gentleman that uh, was one of his bright students there um, was a gentleman that went on to be one of the great uh, uh, theologians, the black theologians of the 21st century, Howard Thurman. Uh, Thurman also follows Mays to Howard University when Mays is the dean of the School of Religion there. Howard Thurman is the dean of the chapel. And so this is sort of the beginning of Mays' legacy in mentoring, and it's how he's really going to leave his lasting legacy on American society was through mentoring young men. And that started during his first teaching stint at Morehouse in 1921. He also becomes an ordained Baptist minister during this period of time, uh, and he um, pastors Shiloh Baptist Church there in Atlanta from 1921 to 1923. And, but tragedy strikes his life at this particular time, and his, his first wife, Ellen Harvin, died. Um, he doesn't say much about it in his autobiography. He just said Ellen had a surgery in a local hospital, and she died. Uh, we know now that Ellen was pregnant. She was having some complications with the pregnancy. Um, they sent her to Atlanta to, to have a, a surgery there that the doctor said would, would fix the bleeding. Unfortunately, the baby died uh, in the surgery. She continued to hemorrhage for about two and a half more weeks, uh, and then she passed away. Um, Dr. Mays then resigned his position at Morehouse, and he goes back to the University of Chicago to earn a master's degree that he had started on. And so during the 1924-25 school years, uh, he returned to University of Chicago to earn a master's degree, graduating in 1925. He then comes back to South Carolina State uh, to teach again, uh, and he meets his second wife there, uh, Sadie Gray. She was on staff, but uh, they marry in the spring of 26, and they leave the South Carolina State because they had a rule that you could not be on faculty together. Um, and they go down to Tampa, well, Florida I- for several years. Yeah. Go ahead. I, I have I'm having some questions come through. 
And so we just need you to slow down a little. Okay. All right. Uh, the, uh, I'm known to the, talk The fast. question is, yeah, where were his parents all of this time when he was at Virginia Union and when he was at Bates? His parents continued to live here uh, in the Epworth community, and in fact, they they stayed here pretty much for the entirety of their life, with the exception of his father. Um, his parents both died in 1938. Uh, his mother, he his uh, um, mother died in March, on March 5th, 1938. His father then dies in June. And during that interim period of time, he actually comes to uh, uh, Washington, D.C. to stay with, with his son, uh, with, with Dr. Mays. And, and, and fortunately, the two of them sort of mended uh, the parting of their ways they had when Dr. Mays was at high school, uh, and, and Dr. Mays refused to come back. And, you know, his, his father just uh, told his son that, you know, he said he was sorry, son. He just could not have ever imagined his son going on to achieve the things that he achieved. And of course, at this time, he's the dean of the School of Religion at America's most prominent black university. And, and of course, Hezekiah just could have never seen that, uh, you know, being coming from the environment that he came from and, and sort of living in the, the backwoods of South Carolina uh, in a sharecropping situation. But his parents continue to, to, to live in this community. In fact, they're both buried uh, at his childhood church at, at the cemetery at, at Old Mount Zion Baptist Church down uh, in the Epworth community. Okay, uh, so continue to tell us a little bit more about uh, his experience at Howard University. Uh, so when Mays goes to uh, uh, Howard, he, he gets there in 1936, and he becomes the dean of the School of Religion there. And this is really the time that Mays begins to distinguish himself. Um, there was a time prior that before he earned his Ph.D. that he actually did this groundbreaking study um, of, of black churches in the United States. And um, it, it's really where Mays began to sort of set himself aside and distinguish himself as a scholar. Uh, in 1930, the Institute of, of Social and Religious Research uh, that was funded by the Rockefeller family uh, embarked upon this sort of ambitious study to understand the African-American church. And he and a gentleman named Joseph Nicholson, who was a uh, minister in the Colored Methodist Episcopal Church, did this study of 691 churches uh, in 12 large cities. And uh, they began to both... Uh, tell the story of the black church and then to critique the black church. Uh, the reason this was significant is because up until this time, you didn't really have, you had a lot of black clergymen in the United States, but there was not a lot of black uh, sort of intellectual clergymen that were writing uh, theological works. And so for, for Mays to do this, it began to sort of set him side, himself aside and distinguish him. Um, they criticized the black church for a couple of things, for you know the denominational uh, rivalries that were in the church, for uh, you know, ministers being too ambitious for, you know, the poor theological training of these preachers, uh, for them having sermon content that just was irrelevant and meaningless, uh, and for the church being a little too unnecessarily emotional, and uh, and, and what they both called, quotation, the overchurching of, of the Negro. And so these are some of the, 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 the criticisms they made. They followed this up with a book uh, that was published in 1938 entitled The Negro God as Reflected in His Literature. And so by this time when Mays, you know, assumes uh, the, the, the leadership of, of the School of Religion at Howard University, um, he is, you know, sort of a hierarchical uh, black intellectual in, in, in the world of, of black religious thought. 
Um, Mays had a few things that he wanted to take on and address while he was there. Um, what he really wanted to do is he wanted to increase the enrollment uh, in, in the School of Religion. Um, he sought to turn it into the first accredited school of religion for African-Americans, and, and people thought that in some ways that would be impossible for him to do. But he was also really serious about improving the faculty. He wanted to bring in more faculty members who had advanced degrees and who were you know, not just clergymen but were uh, religious theologians, religious thinkers. Um, he upgraded the facilities there, and he improved the quality of the library. And the only of, of his original six goals that he didn't really quite achieve is he wanted to set up an endowment, and he did that, but he didn't quite get to his goal of having an endowment that reached you know into the $250,000 range um, prior to the 1940s when he's asked to come to Morehouse and become uh, Morehouse sixth president. But uh, Dr. Mace really distinguished himself at this time largely because he was using the, the Christian theology up until that time had really been used to enslave us, um, going back to the times of slavery. Well, um, Mays and, and, and others that were there on that campus at that time began to use that same Bible, that same theology to to uh, liberate us and to speak against um, sort of the, the Christian theology that was largely in the southern United States uh, that taught to, sought to uh, oppress African-American citizens, and, and they began to use the, the Christian religion, use theological thinking and training to speak against what, what really bothered Mays in particular, and that was the whole idea of Southern segregation and the, the, the limited dignity of African people. And so Mays sought through his, his teachings, his writings, uh, to attack these systems that existed in our society um, that were uh, oppressive to his people or the Negro people. Um, in fact, Mays sort of felt that this calling in his that this, this uh, position he was in was a calling in his life. Uh, in fact, later on, when he comes back to, to Morehouse, um, some of the northerners that were his contemporaries asked him, you know, why would you go back to the south and to deal with all the segregation and all of the, 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 the clan and all the things you have to deal with there? And, and May said, well, the south is where my people are, and, and it's where I can do the most good. And so Mays really sort of felt, uh, you know, a, a sense of a calling to fight against uh, the forces that were uh, oppressing uh, African-American people, primarily uh, in the rural South. And there's a question. Actually, we have two questions. But was okay. this the beginning of black liberation theology when you mentioned Dr. Mays and how he wanted to view Christianity? Um, I don't think that people would think say that it was the beginning. Uh, most, um, you know, particularly Cone, who, who traces the roots of Black liberation theology, trace it back to Africans uh, finding in the Scripture things that were relative to how they viewed Black people. In other words, names that uh, had to do with Africa or Abyssinia or uh, you know those kinds of names that existed in, in the Black Church that uh, Black people were were using the Bible and using it to to capture their own sense of culture and cultural identity, that's where the most people would say that the roots uh, of black liberation theology began. Uh, I think that in terms of formal theology, though, I think in formal theological writing, yes, I think that, that, that Mays and his contemporaries at this time um, would be considered you know, some of the, the early progenitors of, of liberation theology. Okay, and then the other question is, it's the follow-up to what happened to his parents. What about his uh -huh. sister, the one who taught him the ABCs? So uh, she her? again, she again continued to live here in, in, in the community, uh, and um, ultimately 
later on when Mays comes to Atlanta, um, at some point when she was older and, and, and ailing, she moves to Atlanta to live with Mays for a period at the latter part of her life. Uh, but she, too, is buried at Old Mount Zion here in town, and, and many of her descendants are here. Um, we have a great, great, great nephew of, of hers that came down here. He's a 12-year-old boy uh, that came down to do a tour last year and just had a wonderful time out here. Um, but, but most of uh, her descendants, she her second husband was a man with the last name Blocker, and so all of the Blocker descendants. Uh, come from from Susie, and there's a bunch of them here, and some of them up in, in the Spartanburg Packlet area, uh, where Dr. Mays actually had the first school named after him, which was the Benjamin E. Mays Consolidated School that was named after him in 1954. But he has a whole branch of the, the Blocker family up there, uh, and, and scattered throughout other places. Some of them in North Carolina, and some of them came down for the the, the dedication and unveiling ceremony. Okay, well, Chris, we're going to take a quick break. And then come back and continue discussing the life of Dr. Benjamin E. Mays. Welcome back to Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, with co-host Patricia Glover Howard. And you can join me every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, where we will have an expert to share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy and history questions. Remember... All of our guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. All of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast, and they can be downloaded from Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, TuneIn.com, and Stitcher.com. Now, you have been listening to Christopher Thomas discuss the life and legacy of Dr. Benjamin E. Mays. So, Chris, let's continue on with the discussion about Dr. Mays during his Morehouse years. So, Dr. Mays is invited uh, to come to Morehouse in 1940 to become Morehouse's sixth president. And... uh, Dr. Mays comes to Morehouse at a time where the the college had already had a tremendous reputation. In fact, Mays uh, was extremely impressed during his first teaching stint there in 1921 through 23 uh, with the the, the men, the quality of men that were on the campus there, you know, men such as Samuel Archer and uh, Walter Chivers and, and Roscoe McKinney and Claude B. Dansby and, and these men that were just tremendous scholars, and, and, and Mays was most impressed by them that they had instilled in the Morehouse man a sense that, you know, whatever was possible under the sun, 
that a Morehouse man can do it. And, and the reason this was important is because it, it really, you know, went completely against the, the, the grain of a society that had limited um, both physically and in their own minds uh, at, to the majority of African-American people of what was possible for them um, to do and achieve and accomplish in life. And so Morehouse becomes this tremendous place um, that, that these men had, had convinced these young men that, that they, you know, uh, were not hindered by the ideas uh, that the society and the restraints of society placed upon them. And, of course, Mays was a man that had, had, had bucked that whole system and idea his whole life, and so he was very encouraged and inspired by it. So when he's called upon to come to Morehouse in 1940 uh, to become its sixth president, he said that he was in, in encouraged by the idea because of the stimulated students and friends that he had met during his first teaching experience there. Uh, but when he gets to Morehouse, of course, the college is in some trouble uh, because it had an endowment of a little over a million dollars and uh, it had a shrinking faculty so when the other historically black colleges around it were growing in terms of the the, the, the robustness of their faculty the Morehouse faculty had been slowly shrinking uh, as well as their student body and of course uh, World War II um, does a couple of things that's very interesting to, to me about about Dr. Mays um, that you know when 1941 comes and World War II breaks out, um, the college struggles because it loses um, somewhere about 40 or plus percent of its students to the war. Uh, but the war also does something um, that helps Mays, I think, in his efforts later and, and, and with the Civil Rights Movement, is that these men went off to war and they fought so valiantly um, that it, it started to change and transform. Uh, I think without that war effort, I don't know if, if Mays' influence in creating the Civil Rights Movement would have happened or it wouldn't have happened so rapidly. Um, but many of these men come back from the war. Um, and they had really, particularly in the, in the minds of the American military to some degree, have changed some of the ideas of, of, of what people thought about the American, the American, the African American man. And I think that it, that these men came back and gave to their communities a sense of a greater sense of, of their own pride and self worth and value about themselves. Uh, and so Dr. Mays, uh, because he loses so many students, he has to do a couple of things. And one of the things he does, of course, is he starts an early admissions program to Morehouse uh, that was funded actually by uh, – uh, uh, the Rockefeller Foundation, that they were trying to allow young African-American men to come to college early in hopes that they would graduate before they were drafted if the war continued on. And so in 1944, he gets this first class of African-American young boys that were 14 and 15 years of age that come to the Morehouse campus. And of course, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. is the most famous of those um, that comes to Morehouse as a 14-year-old in 1944. Uh, and he ends up graduating from college at 18 years of age. And uh, he, Mays begins to influence King in a lot of ways, uh, but, but one of the things that, that, that Mays uh, does to King and, and, and another gentleman named George Kelsey, who was a, uh, another religious, religion professor there and clergyman on the Morehouse campus, that uh, King came not really wanting to go into the ministry, although he was the son of a clergyman, uh, but he runs into Mays and George Kelsey, and it really sort of changes his mind about wanting to enter the ministry, uh, that it was largely under the, the tutelage of Mays and the courses he took from George Kelsey that convinced King to go into the ministry. But uh, there was also other men like Samuel Du Bois Cook that came at that time, who actually ends up becoming the eulogist of Dr. Mays. But Mays, through his Tuesday afternoon uh, sermons in chapel, begins to really transform not just uh, these two men, but but uh, a whole host of individuals like Ralph Abernathy and Jesse Jackson, uh, who was 
sort of influence through King, uh, but Andrew Young and, and, and John Lewis and, of course, King's wife, Coretta Scott King, he, he creates sort of this army of young men that will ultimately change and transform and, and, and set a new course for American civilization. Uh, and Mays does that through uh, demanding excellency of these of these young people uh, and by also telling them that he just wanted them to, you know, hold their heads high and, and walk through the world with pride and, and, and to work hard and not expect anything to be given to them because they're black. Uh, and he told them that if, if you know if you want to see something changed in the world that you live in, you know you change it. Don't sit around and complain about it. And so he he, he sort of begins to leave this not sort of, but he begins to, he leaves this lasting legacy uh, in the minds and hearts of these young men uh, because they saw in, in this sort of you know for lack of a better term, spiritual father of theirs, uh, an extremely courageous man that was willing to stand up uh, in, in, in the face of all of the uh, racial obstacles and diversities that existed uh, in, in Southern society, but particularly in Atlanta. The other thing that Mays had to do is he had to uh, begin to enforce tuition payments with these students, and so he earns this nickname, Buck Benny, uh, because he would go and he would sit at a desk and have this long line of students. And so if your bill wasn't paid in those days, and I get Morehouse students that were here during the Mays era that come in and tell uh, a lot of really, really good stories about having to uh, walk down this long corridor and have sit, have a sit down with Dr. Mays about why your bill wasn't paid. Uh, and so he, he, he began to enforce these. But the thing that he also did is for students that you know could really explain to him why that they could not pay their bill, uh, Dr. Mays would work tirelessly to find monies for them to go to school. Uh, and, and so Mays begins to write anybody that would listen to him about, you know, how can he get money for these students to continue their education. And, and one of those such interesting stories is uh, uh, in, in 1941, he writes a letter to Margaret Mitchell, who was the author of Gone with the Wind. Um, and, and Margaret Mitchell's first response to Dr. Mays was kind of was cold, I suppose. She just said that considering the uncertainties of time, uh, when she was talking about the war, that she couldn't guarantee that she could make a contribution to the college as Mays was, was requesting and asking of her. And uh, her husband also writes, uh, John Marsh writes Dr. Mays a letter and tells Dr. Mays that he would appreciate if any future correspondence to his wife um, come to him. And so that was sort of code word for the fact that he didn't think uh, that this African-American man should be writing this white woman uh, in, in 1940s Atlanta. Uh, it, and so it's, it's almost difficult for us today to even you know understand why that would have been a concern or understand why she was so adamant about the fact that, that she gave him permission to continue to write her, but she wanted their correspondence to be kept secret. And in fact, uh, over the 13 years that the two of them correspond, um, she th none of these letters are ever put in the mail. They're always carried back and forth between their drivers. Uh, one of the fascinating things about the story is that no one even knew this was going on. Um, even Dr. Mays' secretaries at the time were not aware um, that Margaret Mitchell was sending these funds to Morehouse to pay for these students to go to school. And the short of it is over uh, that period of time, she's accredited with sending more than 40 African-American males to either medical or dental school. And uh, after she made her first contribution uh, in the spring of 42, Dr. Mays then uh, applied the money to a student's account, uh, and then he uh, wrote her back at the end of the year and gave her the young man's photograph and his grades and you know, told her how well the young man had done in school. And so she continued to increase her contributions. Uh, she also had a, a lady that worked for her named Carrie Holbrook, uh, who had been a longtime laundress and, and house worker for her and her mother before her, uh, who was dying of uh, stage four cancer. 
And Margaret Mitchell came immediately to the realities of what medical care was like for African Americans in the city of Atlanta. And so she was just simply looking for a place that she could put Carrie to live out the end of her life in, in peace and, and, and rest. And she's one of Atlanta's wealthiest citizens. And of course, uh, the, the, the beds for African Americans were so full that she couldn't find any place to put her. And of course, the white facilities wouldn't take her because she was African American, no matter how much money Margaret Mitchell was willing to pay. Um, and so she immediately writes Dr. Mays some larger checks for $1,500, and she said that she wanted this money to go to uh, uh, bright and, and inspiring students who want to enter the medical profession in either dentistry or medicine. She said she just had a couple of things that she wanted to happen. She wanted them to agree to practice medicine or dentistry in the state of uh, uh, Georgia, and she also said that she wanted the money to go to students who were of high moral character, not just students uh, who were doing well in school. And so a local doctor named Dr. Otis Smith was one of the recipients of this money. And for years, he, he rose to sort of prominence in, in, in Georgia. He was the leading pediatrician there in the state. And he, uh, for years, kept asking Dr. Mays, who sent him to medical school. And uh, uh, Dr. Mays would never tell him, but he comes to visit Dr. Mays towards the end of his life. And he asks him again, uh, who paid for him to go to medical school? And Dr. Mays smiles at him and says, it was Margaret Mitchell. Unfortunately, Dr. Mays dies several months later, and uh, that following summer after Dr. Mays passed away, Otis Smith writes this $10,000 check uh, to help save the Margaret Mitchell house there in Atlanta. And Margaret Mitchell was not a person that was well-liked by the African-American community because people thought that the caricatures were, that were in the movie and, and in the book were racial caricatures. Um, also, when they had the grand opening the year before Dr. Mays comes to Morehouse in 1939, um, it was at the Grand Regal Theater in, in Atlanta, which is this sort of big theater that had these big columns that looked like an old plantation that had a Confederate flag hanging on the front, and it was segregated. So even uh, Hattie McDaniels and the black cast that were in the movie couldn't even come to the grand opening. And so um, there was a lot of uh, bad blood between the black community and Margaret Mitchell. And so they felt offended when, when he wrote this large check uh, on behalf of saving her house. And he said, well, wait a minute. If it wasn't for Margaret Mitchell making these contributions for me to go to medical school, I wouldn't be able to uh, write this check. And you know, people ran around asking him what he was talking about. And, of course, he said he didn't know very much about it. And Dr. Mays is dead. You can't ask him. But they later find this box uh, where the Margaret Mitchell papers were that was entitled Dr. Mays on the front. They had never opened it. They thought that it was possibly just some letters to a doctor, but they finally pop it open and hear are all these letters back and forth between her and Dr. Mays all these years. Um, they had established kind of an, an unusual friendship. Um, she had established this unusual interest in, in, in Morehouse College and the success of these African-American males to pursue uh, medicine or dentistry. And it, it just sort of bodes to me, you know, one, Dr. May's his tenacity to get done what he needed to get done on behalf of this college that he loved so much, but also that he was willing to reach across the, uh, the, the aisle uh, in, in a city of Atlanta that had had so much racial strife and histories of race riots. Uh, and he found someone that was willing to extend her arm back to him, and I think that it's just one of the phenomenal stories in history, uh, particularly in, in the rural South, uh, and, and, and Dr. Mays was a part of that. Uh, and, and, you know, like I said, it's just very few men, I think, at that time, particularly African-American men, would have had the courage and the boldness uh, to reach out to someone like Margaret Mitchell and to ask for, for assistance financially on behalf of Morehouse College. You know, this is uh, just amazing, and we have a, a comment that says, uh, you know, what a shame that Mitchell could not be benevolent out in the open, but thanks, thank goodness that she found a way to make a huge difference in the betterment of education for our community. So what sure. happened to those letters? 
Um, so they're still a part of the Margaret Mitchell papers. Um, some of them have been published in various books and, and articles and things that have been written about them. Uh, I have some of them, I think, that are posted on our Facebook page. Um, I think there's three of them on there in one of the stories that we did about uh, this relationship between Mitchell and, and Mays. And uh, so they're, they're still available to view, um, And uh, but most of them, are, like I said, are available through the Margaret Mitchell papers uh, and the Margaret Mitchell house there in, in Atlanta. But I, I will say, okay. though, you know, sort of mm-hmm. in Margaret Mitchell's defense, uh, that I think that her unwillingness to 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 be so open about the, the, these these giftings, um, I think that she probably considered Mays himself in his own safety, because you know the, the the potential backlash from the white community would have probably been more their inclination to lynch Benjamin Mays than it would have been to hurt her. Uh, so I, I don't think that her, you know, sort of openly knowing that, that her and Dr. Mays were carrying on a relationship, although it was completely, you know, platonic and above board, um, you know, to have relationships between black men and white women in the South in the 1940s was almost a crime. Uh, and so certainly she understood, mm-hmm. you know, the, 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 the parameters that existed in, in Southern society and, and particularly in, in some of these major cities like Atlanta and what the repercussions could be, not just for her, but for Benjamin Mays, uh, had people have known that the two of them were having phone conversations and exchanging letters. Yes, but, but an amazing story. But you're right, it was for his protection because if sure, that absolutely. had ever become public, we would mm-hmm. not be speaking of Dr. Mays right In the now same way. the way we are. <laughs> yeah, That's yeah, right, yeah. definitely. Yeah. So tell us more about Dr. Mays. Um, so when he retired from Morehouse, what did he do? So when Dr. Mays uh, leaves Morehouse, he, he takes a year off, uh, and of course during that year off tragedy, it was 1968, uh, tragedy strikes his life, uh, and his spiritual son, Martin Luther King Jr., is assassinated. Uh, Mays is then called on to, to eulogize Dr. King, and, um, and and really does a tremendous job, and, and he, he, he uh, called those uh, to to continue the, the work that that, that uh, King had started, uh, and and he really you know sort of uh, painted this picture that is for as many people that hate him, there are people that that love him and that he's beloved of, and and he just did you know in, in Mays's way a very balanced way of addressing race and the complexity of race in American society at that time. Uh, of course, he was he was hurt and very bothered. He sort of followed that up with a book uh, entitled Disturbed About Man. Uh, that was in many ways sort of a personal treatise of, of, of both uh, King and other friends of his, like Charles Richard Drew, uh, who he had lost. And he, he was very concerned about the, the ability of, of mankind to show treachery towards one another. Uh, and, and, and that book sort of deals with his uh, concern about that. He then sort of follows that book up with a book called uh, Seeking to Be Christian in Race Relations, um, that, that sort of drew him back to his sense of his, of his Christian convictions uh, and, and, and tried to call all of his beloved Christian church in America to a place where they were uh, seeking to look at race uh, through the eyes of their Savior. And, uh, uh, you know, at that time, of course, you know, it was a very challenging thing to do. But uh, Mays, uh, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. No, the the, the following year, uh, he runs for a seat on the Atlanta Public School Board, and he wins the seat. Uh, several months later, he's asked to be the president of the Atlanta Public School Board, and he becomes the first African American president of the school board. Uh, Dr. Mays assumes that post at a time where. Uh, 
the state of Georgia, um, but particularly Atlanta, uh, was struggling with the, the, the mandate to desegregate public schools. Um, the governor at that time, of course, was not uh, in favor of it at all, and, and he would you know, go away. Uh, and, and, of course, the third president that Mays would be an advisor to, Jimmy Carter, would assume the governorship uh, in Georgia. But Mays uh, goes through this process of, of really pulling off the desegregation of the Atlanta public schools without any violence. They never had to call in the National Guard. Um, and and uh, the attorney for the, the uh, Atlanta public schools at that time said that it was because Mays had uh, created so much goodwill on both sides of the aisle with both blacks and whites in Atlanta during his 27 years as the president of Morehouse that no one wanted to go against him and to do anything that was going to cause him any public shame. And so everyone sort of just fell in line with his leadership uh, and allowed him to, to, to uh, desegregate the public schools. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that everyone loved it. I'm just saying that, that it didn't erupt into violence, and certainly it caused to some degree um, the urban sprawl you see in, in, in white society. If, I, if my children have to go to school um, with black children, I'll, I'll move to Alpharetta or Roswell or somewhere out of the city. Uh, but, but Dr. May certainly um, provided great leadership like he did throughout the entirety of his career um, during this particular period of time. Uh, he also then becomes, and as I didn't sort of get in that earlier, but you know, during his career, he was an advisor to three presidents. Um, the first was John Fitzgerald Kennedy. Um, Kennedy actually sent him uh, around the world uh, to, to many places to represent the United States uh, as, as a, 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 a dignitary for the United States. And uh, upon Kennedy's assassination, of course, he had on many of those trips accompanied the then vice president, Lyndon Baines Johnson, and the two of them had created a friendship. Uh, and so when Kennedy's assassinated, Johnson assumes the presidency and uh, Mays is there and Johnson is largely called upon uh, to uh, continue John F. Kennedy's civil rights uh, leg uh, platform that he had started. And, and Lady Baines Johnson wasn't necessarily a civil rights guy. Uh, and so he leans on Mays fairly heavily with, to advise him. And, and, of course, one of the great things that, that uh, Mays is able to do is at this time, of course, all of his former students are the leaders in the civil rights movement. And so he's able to make introductions and, and put together some, some plans and platforms that assist uh, Johnson in, in pushing forward to achieve the signing of the civil rights legislation. Uh, and of course, the last president, as I was saying, uh, was President Jimmy Carter. Uh, he and Carter become you know, great friends, first when Carter is the, the governor of Georgia, and then later when Carter goes to the White House, he brings Mays with him as an advisory person uh, to advise him on issues in education. Uh, and, and their friendship continues up until uh, you know Mays is gone, and, and, and Carter's actually been a supporter of our site since we've been here. We've never been able to get him here. We've tried, but uh, certainly he's he's supported us uh, in our efforts to to start this place. Uh, he was there when when uh, um, Dr. Mays was inducted into the South Carolina Hall of Fame, and he wasn't in good enough shape to travel to South Carolina. So Robert Hirsch, who was the then president of uh, uh, the South Carolina Hall of Fame and Jimmy Carter go to his home in Atlanta uh, to induct him into the South Carolina Hall of Fame. And so uh, he and Carter r remained very close and very friend good friends. And uh, they were very similar men in, in the kind of uh, genteel personality they had. They were sort of genteel Christian Southern men. Uh, and, and, and he was the last president that, that Mays would advise. And so I, I think that that's an extraordinary story in and of itself, that you know, you're a young man, African-American man born in the backwoods of South Carolina, uh, and not only do you go on to achieve all this educational greatness, but to go on to be an advisor to three presidents uh, is an extraordinary thing to, to understand how he really sort of navigated that by sure will and determination. Yes, and there's a comment in the uh, chat, how incredible to have so many students who became leaders in their own right, that this is a, a wonderful legacy. So why don't you sure. tell us again about the the preservation site and uh, 
where it's located, your hours of operation, and what people can see when they get there. So our uh, it's in Greenwood, South Carolina. Uh, it's on the campus of Gleams, and uh, it's fitting that, it, that that our site is here because the, the grounds that are here, um, the, the other buildings that were here, were significant to black life in Greenwood County. In fact, it was the hub of black life. The Gleams offices now were once the uh, African-American hospital in this area, and it was a training hospital that trained 60% of the nurses in the upstate at one time. And then the Brule Normal School uh, was a school for it was a, before segregation occurred here in our county. Uh, it was the uh, school for African-Americans here and, and, and was very successful in men that were younger than Mays, but creating uh, men that were PhD'd and, and, and men that went on to have tremendous success. And so there's a legacy of that in our county. But uh, as I said earlier, we have his birth home here. We have the Burn Springs School here. There's a statue here. We have uh, books and, and things. We're going to be adding another building uh, in probably another year and a half uh, that will become an auditorium that's going to look like a replication of his childhood church, the old Mount Zion Baptist Church when he attended as a child. Uh, and our current auditorium will become more museum space. But we encourage people to come and really sort of touch and feel the life of Mays. In addition to the buildings, we keep a living history here. Uh, so it's about time for us here in, in several more weeks to pull up our cotton patch from last year, and our garden has already been uh, pulled up and uh, uh, the ground cleared. And so we'll be, we keep a garden and a cotton field here to really sort of remind us of, of the world and the life that Dr. Mays came from. And particularly for young people, it's a way for them to really sort of touch, uh, you know, the existence of Mays as a young man, you know, it, it's a much shorter row of cotton, but they can get out and have an opportunity to get out and pick cotton and get a sense for what it was like to get pricked by one of those thorns and, and, and what cotton picking was like. I mean, certainly we're not doing it from sun up to sundown like Mays would have in his youth, but uh, um, it gives people an opportunity to understand the history um, that Dr. Mays came out of. Um, but our hours of operation, so we're, our, our gate hours are Mondays and Tuesdays from 9 a.m. to 12.30, on Wednesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays from 9 a.m. to 2.30. However, um, anyone can call me at any time at 864-229-8833. That's 864-229-8833. And I will pretty much do tours at, at any time. I, I mean, I tell people I'll even do them on Sundays as long as they're not during church hours. Um, but we get groups that come over in the weekend, so whatever time, if someone's visiting the area and they need me to accommodate them in the summertime, you know, at, at 7 o'clock at night when there's still sunlight, I, I'll be here to do a tour whenever someone wants to come and, and to see and, and, and touch and hear about Mays and his tremendous legacy. And uh, I, although we did mention it in the beginning, just say one more time, what does GLEAMS stand for? So GLEAMS stands for uh, Greenwood, Lawrence, Edgefield, Abbeville, McCormick, and Newberry. They were the original counties that uh, our agency served. We actually serve 27 counties now uh, in the upstate. I think every county except for Greenwood County, they have their own community action agency. Um, but we serve every other county in the upstate, uh, and we provide um, head. So all the Head Start uh Schools that are in those counties are, are, are run by Gleams. Um, we provide uh, uh, assistance with, with um, 
energy bills. If someone's having a difficult time paying their energy bill, we have a program that weatherizes houses that can come in and through grant monies and, and weatherize someone's home. And so uh, Gleams provides a tremendous service. And, and again, it's fitting that Mays is here because he was a person that believed in that kind of work and, and, and that someone should be there to take care of the segments of communities uh, and, and society that are often overlooked and pushed to the side because they need a, a little extra help uh, and, and a little extra care and concern. And is the uh, preservation site funded through Gleams, or is it through the Park Service? How are you funded? So the site is funded primarily through private donations. Um, we have received funds from the state, um, from the tourism department, and we are currently actively um, starting a Benjamin E. Mays Endowment Fund through the Greenwood Community Foundation. And so we're actively going about uh, with a goal to raise $5 million that the uh, investment proceeds of that money will continue to fund both the site and to fund uh, a Benjamin E. May scholarship that we're going to start uh, or that we are starting. Um, and, and the hopes is that we can get to $5 million. It will give us somewhere around uh, $300,000 to be able to maintain the site and to provide, you know, one hundred and fifty to two hundred thousand dollars or so of scholarships a year to young people that want to go to school in the name uh of Dr. Benjamin e. Mays and his legacy. Well this has been just an interesting discussion just to hear about Dr. Benjamin E. Mays, to hear about his life and then to hear that his life continues on through his legacy at the preservation site. So do you have any parting words for us before we close out tonight? Well, I, I just think that that people should make an effort to go uh, read his autobiography. Um, um, I think that both of his his books on the black church, the Negro church, and the Negro God is reflected in his literature have been republished. You can find them in, in, in paperback copies for, for not a lot of money. Uh, I, I think that you learn a lot about the history of African Americans, particularly from the end of the Reconstruction era through the Civil Rights Movement. Dr. Mays' life touches pretty much every major theme uh, in that particular period of history, and I think that you could literally teach a class and understand Mays' life uh, and legacy uh, and, and understand American history through his life and legacy. So I just encourage people to go uh, and, and read and learn about Mays. Um, he has so many wonderful quotes and sayings um, that you can almost live your life by. Uh, he was just one of America's great, great, great men. Uh, and, and I just encourage people to go and take some time to learn of, of Mays and learn of his life and his legacy. Well, I just want to thank you so much for for sharing the information with us on Dr. Benjamin E. Mays and about the preservation site. And this, the story is so inspiring, as you have said tonight. And so for those who are interested, please go out, get his book, Born to Rebel, and other books, because he is telling us something. And it, to say that he was a child of a person who was enslaved, and look at where he managed to make it in life. And so just thank you very much. And and remember, everybody, I want you to remember this. Your ancestors left footprints. And the clues that they that present to you through oral history, family records, 
and research at the National Archives and Beyond. Now, you can continue this discussion on the research at the National Archives and Beyond and Afrogenius Facebook pages. And also remember to listen to the African Roots podcast with Angela Walton Raji on Friday. And also watch for the Black Progen Live with host Nika Sul Smith. Thank you so much for joining research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. And also check out my services at BB's Genealogy Research and Educational Services, LLC. And my website is www.geniebroots.com. Well, I look forward to all of you joining us next week. This is your host, Bernice Alexander-Bennett, with co-host Patricia Glover-Howard. Good night, everyone. Good night, Christopher Thomas. Good night, and thank you for having me.